It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. This is episode 5, Welcome to Family Feudalism. We left our story following the disintegration of Charlemagne's vast European territory. By the late 800s, his descendants had torn it apart in the way that their Frankish family tradition had demanded. Before we get into what happened from there, at least in regard to the power play machinations of blokes with swords part of the story, there are a few things that need to be mentioned. In the medieval era, the rights of a feudal nobility in Europe became entrenched in the social zeitgeist. The idea that there was a ruling class was not doubted, and the vast majority of people, the commoners, still had to and did pay homage to the recognised rights of that nobility. Sure, they would have grumbled against it and joked about it amongst themselves and sometimes in public, yet they still had little choice as the power of the nobles lay in their control of land and resources and the common people were a part of those resources. Since the structure was also hierarchical, that homage and importantly also taxes had to move upwards, from commoners to small land-owning barons, up through margraves, counts, dukes, princes, kings, emperors, and yeah, what, what's above the emperor? Oh, Yoda. Secondly, at this stage in our story, if we are not including the presence of the church in everyday life, then we are neglecting what would become a very enduring and influential condition of life in the history of the Netherlands. The conversion of the Merovingians in the 400s had authorized Christian missionaries and the ecclesiastical establishment to begin founding churches, abbeys, cathedrals, and of course regional centers of powers called bishoprics. With the push of the Merovingians, these lowlander salient Franks who preceded Charlemagne to the south from the 6th century, and with the establishment of their capital in Paris, the focus of Merovingian culture was removed from the lowlands. Besides, Christianity had not truly taken hold amongst the common people as it had amongst the ruling aristocracy. Most of the general populace was still pagan. It was not until the 500s that missionaries en masse made their ways into the lower Frankish wilderness, setting about trying to truly turn the lowlands Christian. Monks, nuns, and abbeys beget monks, nuns, and abbeys. Not only did the abundance of monks, nuns, and abbeys increase the amount of missionaries setting out to spread the good word, but it also nurtured literacy. Although countless documents do not survive history, many do, and they give us rare insights into the minds of people who themselves have long, long gone. Countless monks and nuns copying texts and generally just writing stuff down, are the real heroes in European history. Because without them, our history would only be oral, and we would be substantially more ignorant about the past than we are now. Saint Armand was one of the most influential, spending around half a century working to such ends. He pushed to make baptism compulsory, and he focused on just making sure everybody was a Christian. He also founded important and long-lasting abbeys, such as St. Bavos in Ghent. It was those who succeeded him, driven on by a standard of enthusiasm which he had set, who spent the time required in regional areas to ensure that Christianity became a part of the social fabric. The names of some of the most influential of these survive. Around the Skeld, which borders today's Netherlands and Belgium, it was St. Eloise, Along the Meuse, today around Limburg, was St. Remarkle, 
and in Toxandria, pushing north into the boggy swamp around today's Breda, was St. Lambert. So, by the time we get to the 10th and 11th centuries, which are the focus of this episode, Christianity is once more pretty well poised to start playing an extremely constant and significant role in everyday life, but also in higher realm politics. So throughout all of this, we must not forget about the church. And lastly, also keeping in mind that during all that we are about to relate, both the real and imagined threat of Viking attack, as we covered in the previous episode, is still a constant until about the early to mid-11th century. So, if you're ever finding yourself sitting back complacently and calmly listening to this and thinking, this doesn't sound too bad, then imagine a larger, scarier, more mustachioed man than you holding a big axe and running angrily towards you. We left our tale at the end of the previous episode, around when Charles the Fat was deposed by his nephew Arnulf who thus took on the title of King of East Francia. At the same time, West Francian nobles elected a different guy, Odo, as their king. Middle Francia, lying between the two larger kingdoms, and which included, of course, our beloved swamp, was divided up between them, which resulted in the county of Flanders becoming a part of the Western Kingdom, and the rest of the lowland territories, collectively called Lotharingia, becoming part of the Eastern one. West Francia is basically today's France, while East Francia is basically what would eventually become the Holy Roman Empire. To try to make it less confusing, we are going to try to stick to the names France for West Francia and the Empire for East Francia, but we may mix it up a little bit. As for Lotharingia, which included the rest of the lowlands besides Flanders, What had emerged by the latter half of the 900s were a bunch of different counties with varying geographical peculiarities, populations, cultures, resources, and trade connections. Their counts ruled absolutely in their localized areas. In the south of the lowlands, these counties were Hanau, Namur, Limburg, and Luxembourg. In the north of the lowlands, Brabant and Helders. And then there was Friesland which is just so remote in the north that it just rocked along, doing its own thing for most of the time, taking measures either for or against the emperor and the Saxons insofar as it suited the interests of the Frisian ruling nobility, who would not have called themselves Franks. Compared to the south, the north was very sparsely inhabited. What would become known as Holland is still referred to as West Friesland at this stage, and isn't really a thing yet but more just a boggy peat swamp sitting between coastal dunes and a big lake called the Almir. Charles the Fat had also been the Roman Emperor, a title that technically gave rule to most of Western Europe, including the Lowlands, but following his removal, the title of Emperor pretty much went south to Italy and then fell into disarray for about 80 years. So there was a pretty decent period of time, around two or three generations worth, when no strong central ruler existed to boss all of those lowland accounts around. Much like the tides of the sea, which have ever ebbed and flowed into and out of our beloved little swampland, having major effects on the lives of the people living there, the ebb and flow of centralized power were also going to have major effects and help to shape the political working of the lowlands from here on in. Remember that the emperor was just the top rung of the power ladder, which consisted of a ruling nobility. When that top rung was gone, or even weakened, those lower down nobles suddenly didn't have anybody above them telling them what to do, or who was in much of a position to demand money, troops, or resources from them. If these nobles were ambitious, which funnily enough, pretty much all of them were, these moments would present them with an opportunity to step into the vacuum and claim a more prominent position for themselves and for their families. We already met some such characters in the last episode, such as Baldwin Ironarm, who became the first Count of Flanders after some strategic kidnapping of the King of France's daughter, 
and Gerolf, who had been granted lands in West Frisia for his role in helping to enable some strategic treachery and murder, and then later was given the title of Count in Frisia by Arnulf, the nephew of Charles the Fat, who was by then King of East Francia. So if you were an ambitious noble, controlling one of the many territories in these lowlands that lay in between two larger kingdoms, and you wished to move yourself up into a more prominent position, what would you do? Well, what many of them chose to do was switch allegiances between the great powers whenever they deemed it politically necessary and beneficial to do so. The first major instance of this was when a group of nobles, led by a guy called Reginar Longneck, Count of Hanau, revolted against someone called Zventibold, who was an illegitimate son of Arnulf and who had a pretty sweet name, Zventibold. He had been crowned by the Emperor as the King of Lotharingia. Never mind that all these upper nobles in Lotharingia were ruling their domains within it with relative autonomy. Zventibold was unpopular with them, so when Arnulf died, they decided that Rather than the bastard Zventibold, they would rather be ruled by the six-year-old legitimate son of Arnulf, aptly called Louis the Child. It must be a pretty bad feeling when somebody tells you that a six-year-old would make a better ruler than you. But so was it for Zventibold, who, in the consequences of his anger at this, was killed in battle by Reginar Longneck in the year 900. After his death, Louis the Child inherited the title of King of Lotharingia anyway, alongside being King of East Francia already. Louis the Child technically still had a rebellion on his hands in the Lowlands, but he was also busy at the time, doing what most six-year-old kids do, dealing with Magyar invasions which were threatening to devastate his lands in the East. He, okay, technically those who ruled for him, thus appointed a bloke whose name we won't mention because, to be honest, he wouldn't last for very long to be the Duke of Lotharingia and to rule in his place. This unnamed fellow didn't last very long because he went and died in battle against the aforementioned Magyars in 910. And then Louis the Child, himself, who would by now better have been called Louis the Angsty Teenager, apparently died in severe depression just a year later. That same year... Once again, led by Reginar Longneck, the nobles of Lotharingia decided to shift allegiance from the east to the west and to elect the French king, Charles the Simple, as their ruler. As you can probably tell from his name, Charles the Simple was not the most well-respected man. He was perceived as weak, which is no doubt why those ambitious nobles of Lotharingia chose to switch to his side, wishing to exploit him in their attempts to grab more power for themselves. Following the death of Reginar Longneck, his son, Gislebert, became Duke of Lotharingia. Gislebert must have been something of a political chameleon, because he seemed to change colours whenever it suited him, switching sides between France and the Empire no fewer than four times, according to some sources. Eventually, the Duke of Saxony, a man who really loved hunting birds and so was named Henry the Fowler, and whose lands comprised pretty much everything to the east of the Lowlands, was able to gather enough power to be elected the King of East Francia in 919. In 925, he convinced Gislebert that Team Empire was actually the one to be on. By convince him, we mean that he marched his armies into his lands and besieged him. But Gislebert, being Gislebert, saw what was what, and he agreed to become a vassal of Henry. And then, in what must be the best result ever for having lost the war, he got to marry Henry's daughter, who was called Gerberga. That's right. Gislebert and Goberger, sitting in a tree. What a combination of names. What do you think their couple name Portmanteau would be? Gislerberger? Gerbelabert? <laughs> anyway, a few years after all of this, Henry the Fowler was out doing what he loved doing, hunting birds, and then he did something that he wouldn't have loved doing, and he had a stroke and died. His son Otto became the new king of East Francia in 936. 
as you no doubt recall from our previous episode, Frankish children never really seem to get along with each other. So with Gerberga no doubt informing her husband, Gislebert, the Duke of Lotharingia, that it was family tradition to now all try to kill each other at this point, Gislebert decided it was probably best to switch sides again back to the French, and offered his allegiance to the now king, Louis IV. In response to this, in 939, Otto came marching into Lotharingia and met Gislebert in battle at Andernach. Here, Gislebert was captured, but then he escaped, but then he drowned when he tried to cross the Rhine River. So Lotharingia was once more a part of the empire. After this, Gerberga's younger brother, Henry, took over from his drowned brother-in-law as the Duke of Lorraine. The Lowlands then stopped the constant switching of its loyalties between the Empire and France, and became officially a part of the Empire as its fifth stem duchy. Whew. At this point, we're just going to step out of the narrative for a second to have a breather, give our brains a break, and try to digest what exactly is happening. And look, if you found yourself getting confused by all these ridiculous 10th century names, and by the fact that all these people who are ruling and rebelling and marrying and killing each other also seem to be related, then don't worry. Their names really were stupid, and they really were all related to each other. An easy way to think about this is that it's basically like Bold and the Beautiful, but with more swords, castles, and incest. Or it's exactly like Game of Thrones. But minus the magic, without the dragons, the zombies, and the shape-shifting assassins. Either way, it was a 10th century soap opera, which, if you step into any particular moment of it, it doesn't really matter what the names of the individual characters are, because the story is much the same. They all wanted to be the ruler, but they all also really cared a lot about their family lines. If you had no chance to be ruler yourself, The next best thing would be for your children to get in a queue for powerful positions, or in the case of women, to be married into that queue, to be married to a ruler or a future ruler. If you married your child into this queue, then perhaps your grandkids could become king or duke or count or whatever. Everyone in the nobility was playing this game, and they were mostly all prepared to marry or kill whomever it took to further their and their family line's advancement. And whilst it's entertaining for us in the 21st century to hear all about the double-crossing, side-switching, chameleon-like antics of people like Gislebert, it must have been pretty difficult for the people who lived underneath the rule of these nobles, and who would have been forced to pay taxes, join their armies, provide them with food and supplies, and who probably spent a lot of time scratching their head, wondering whether today they were being sent to fight for the sovereign of France or for the empire. The thing is, though, that there were other major cultural forces at play, especially on the common folk, and the biggest of these by far was the church and the changes that it undertook during those years. So once again, let's not forget about the church. By the turn of the 800s into the 900s, the church in Western Europe was not in its greatest position of strength. Remember those Vikings? Well, their targets were often the abbeys and churches that had increased from the 500s, which we spoke about at the start of this episode. But by now, many of the things that were of value in them were seized and plundered. Monks and priests were slaughtered and many fled, At this time, the Catholic clergy could still marry, and so many priests had families and other loved ones to care for. There was a general economic depression, and as abbeys required land that was granted by the privilege of the nobility, they were dependent on these highly political and feuding creatures who were supposed to be running the whole joint. Often, the nobles ravaged and exploited these places just as badly as Vikings did. In 910, the Cluny Abbey was founded in southern Lotharingia, and because of various reasons that we are not going to go into, was able to establish itself as independent. 
This would become the most famous and influential medieval monastery in Western Europe, and that influence would certainly come to bear on the lowlands. Its abbot answered only to the Pope, and so a revised Western monasticism was able to develop relatively free from the demands of the nobility, and was rather able to push back against them and their incessant wielding of power. Cluny was a Benedictine abbey, which invoked a humble, frugal, and pious form of monasticism. As these humble, frugal, and pious monks wandered down towards the lowlands, they built rural churches and abbeys, and their piety drew the citizens of society to them, not only to attend church and hear these monks speak, but to be provided with a group of solitary but exemplary dudes who would make you feel guilty because you weren't as pious as they were. Guilt was a burden that could be shared by commoner and noble alike. In the lowlands, particularly in present-day Belgium, the spread of what would become known as the Cluniac reforms was greatly assisted by the work of a man called Gerard de Bron. He was of noble rank and had been a warrior, but later in life turned towards Benedictine monasticism, returning home to build a church on his family's estate. He would then spend four decades reorganizing, reinvigorating, and rebuilding the church in what is today Belgium. Amidst this renaissance, citizens generally became compelled to provide for the pious and frugal monks, to make donations to the causes of building the abbeys and monasteries and churches, donation for the goodness of the soul. The nature of Benedictine humility came to bear on the Christian burden of guilt, especially amongst the nobility, leading to nobles making more and more valuable donations to the church, helping to increase its wealth. All this served to pick the church up from its knees following centuries of Viking raids and exploitation by the nobles. The influence, prestige, and actual means of wielding power all began to increase for the church from here on. Socially, what this reform did was allow for the establishment of the clergy as dependable authorities on whom the people saw as not only infallible, but utterly trustworthy. As during the 900s, the great nobles played their tumultuous games of stabby, stab, stab, and this is my castle now, buddy. The church became a consistent force in the everyday lives of the common citizens, regardless of whether or not their liege lords shifting allegiances made them pawns for the French king or for the emperor. Very importantly for us, in around 922, a piece of land was granted in the area that was variously known as West Frisia or also Canemerland to a count who had been striving to maintain a hold on power against unruly Frisians to his north and northeast. His name was Derek. And on the land he received, he would found a nunnery, which would become a monastery that espoused the exact values of the Cluniac Benedictine reforms. Derek would later become known as the Count of Holland, and is believed to have founded a town that would later become the city of Dordrecht. Of course, the members of the bishopry sitting at the top of the ecclesiastical tree, were also playing a political game. Appointments could be, and very much were made, by the King of France, or by the Emperor, and then ratified by the Pope, who was miles away in Italy. Eventually, this all became a matter of who you knew, and whose political agenda your appointment would benefit. Once you had a foot in the door, as, say, a deacon... You may one day become a bishop, and then perhaps an archbishop. By that stage, you are living like a prince. Perhaps, though, if you play your cards right, you could one day be elected as pope. And then you are pretty much amongst the most powerful people in Europe, if not the most. Whenever temporal power, so the non-religious power of dukes, counts, and other regional rulers disintegrated, the consistent grassroots attachment of the people to the Catholic Church because of this Benedictine-style monasticism that had grown out of the Abbey at Cluny allowed the structure of the Church to fill in any vacuum. It always remained relevant, 
and by doing so, just consistently gained more and more power and influence. In this time, all bishoprics, but in the lowlands, particularly those of Utrecht and Liège, accumulated massive holdings, wealth, and influence. The bishops became powerful enough figures to become assets to the sovereigns of either France or the empire. However, they also technically only owed allegiance to the Pope, who, being half a continent away on the other side of a mountain range, nobody really cared as much about as what they might have said they did. Furthermore, the power of a bishop was not passed down a family line, but given by appointment. A part of the power play machinations between feuding European nobles was to get a whole family on your side or in your debt. The position of a bishop could not be held within one family, and so it took different arrangements and tactics for them to be of use to the East and West Frankian sovereigns. Also, bishops back then weren't quite the doddering old dudes walking around in ludicrous hats and shoes like we see today. More often, they were of the same warrior prince stock that could raise and lead armies. They would take land by force, and then it was theirs or at least they ruled it on behalf of the church. Why not? Everybody else was doing it. Speaking of doing things which everybody else is doing, it's time for an ad break. We'll be back shortly. One way that the German kings in East Francia sought to maintain power in the lowlands against the church was by appointing favoured members of their nobility into ecclesiastical positions. If a vassal of the king, a count or a duke or whatever, also became a bishop, then the resources of church land and influence of that church in general could be used to the benefit of the king. The clergy wielded the power of faith and more importantly, of guilt. Everybody was Christian. The Pope and his representatives were the guardians of your and everybody else's soul and of whether it got into heaven or not. And this was a real thing in the minds of everybody. So if the German emperor could control a bishop, this gave him an extra level of power. Bishops could excommunicate people. And they did. Not only as a spiritual weapon, but as a political weapon. By 958, the internecine wranglings of the higher nobility in the Netherlands led to a decision being made by another of Henry the Fowler's children, and someone with a pretty great name, Bruno the Great. He was exactly one of these religio-political warrior beasts, both the archbishop of the very powerful diocese of Cologne, but handily also the brother of Otto, who was by now king of Germany. Bruno was therefore given the lay title, Duke of Lotharingia. But after yet another revolt, this time by a grandson of that old foe of the emperors, Reginald Longneck, his name was, wait for it, Reginald III, the Count of Hanno, Bruno the Great decided that Lotharingia was pretty ungovernable, and so he split it into two smaller, easier-to-control regions that would then become known as Upper and Lower Lorraine. What we care about is the lower part. It encompassed basically all of today's Netherlands, including Friesland, as well as a vast chunk of eastern and central Belgium, remembering that the very western part of Belgium, Flanders, was still loyal to the French king. Lower Lorraine also included much of Luxembourg and a part of the German Rhine River Valley. After his attempted revolt, Reginald III was exiled by Bruno to Bohemia. Bruno stripped him of all his lands and created the position of a lieutenant of the king to oversee the governance of Lower Lorraine. To this position of power, he elevated one of the higher nobility, the Count of Ardennes, whose name was Godfrey. Now imagine that you are a young, powerful noble in the lowlands. In fact, you are a great-grandson of that famous and great Reginald Longneck, who had persisted so much for liberty from either of the West and Eastern domains. For years, savvy political moves have been made by your grandfather and your father, 
to benefit the line of rulers to which you now belong. You would have been looking out beyond the horizon of your adolescence towards a time when you would have been the count yourself, and maybe you'd have the opportunity to expand your power base and extend your territorial borders. And now, a really annoying, distantly related in-law of yours, who's got a fancy job and thinks he's so great that his name is literally The Great, goes ahead and strips your father of his lands, and thus you of your inheritance, creates a whole new political entity, to which you are now most definitely a subject, and then promotes another count to the job of ruling over you and everyone you know. And that other count, no less, carries a name like Godfrey. Well, my dear medieval young lowlander noble, you would not be too happy at all. In fact, you might feel fairly aggrieved and insurrectionally minded towards this, which is exactly what the sons of the Count of Hanno called Lambert and another Reginar, which was obviously their favourite name at the time, it's how they felt towards this impugning upon the independence of their and their family line's interests. They went into rebellion once more, but eventually came to terms with the King of East Francia, who by now had regained the title of the Emperor. So it is from here that truly we must refer to East Francia slash Germany as the Empire. Not only because it's kind of chronologically correct, but also because it's just a badass name. The Empire. Following their rebellion, the two brothers became solidified as the Counts of Lufane and Hanau, respectively. This is also important, as from these two family lines, much more would stem. Remembering the importance of family lines at these times, in the minds of their kind, the nobility in general adhered to the greater strength of the most noble family names, the Carolingians, that being those who had descended from Charlemagne himself, held the most noble name of them all, but had become actually weakened by generational change, just as the Merovingians had before them. There is much to be said for the process of generational change on a family of conquerors. The tenacity, skill, and hardship needed to take a throne is not then really bred into the confines of soft, palace life that follows the taking of a throne. Spoiled and entitled youth are not the mould of hardened conquerors. Charlemagne, one might guess, might not have seen himself reflected so well in the softness of those who, a hundred years after him, still bore his lineage. As power had consolidated behind both the French throne and the imperial East Frankish throne, the question of succession to these titles always captured the imagination of the wider European nobility. If the King of France died and did not leave a legitimate son, then it might give rise to an illegitimate son making a claim, or even anyone who could just pop up and claim descent from Charlemagne. Other great nobles, however, perhaps not of such elite lineage, consistently strived to make the kingships into elected positions, to which any prince of the realm could be elevated. In France, in fact, once in the 9th century and once again in the 10th, non-Carolingians were elected to be kings. However, the value and virtue put on the strength of a name, and in this case the Carolingian, meant that those with any connection to the name could very, very easily put a case forward that it was their bum that should be seated on the throne. Around the 980s, the emperor, therefore, perhaps realizing that he could not keep the feuding feudal counts of the lowlands in check by himself, appointed a young French prince. Not a young fresh prince, a young French prince, as the Duke of Lower Lorraine, effectively the lowlands. This way, the emperor was playing the long game, whereby he could take a potential future French king under his tutelage and influence. This young French prince, Charles, real original name there, brother of the current French king, had got offside from his royal brother by accusing his brother's wife of infidelity. He came out the worst in this and was driven out of the kingdom of France and into the loving arms of his cousin the emperor in around 976. 
Within a few years, their brother and cousin, the French king, invaded the empire. And then they invaded back. They had him at siege in Paris before he was relieved by his most powerful captain, a man named Hugh Capet. Because this is a history of the Netherlands and not of France and Germany, you will note that we are fairly hurling ourselves bluntly over the details. But suffice to say that out of this, in France, Carolingian power would finally lose its hold on the throne and Hugh Capet would become the king. His line would then rule France into the 1300s. The Duke of Lower Lorraine then, this French prince, Charles, would end up penniless and imprisoned by Hugh Capet, and he died in 993. He did have a son, however, Otto, and at the same age as his father had been, 23, Otto took the title of Duke of Lower Lorraine. Obviously, he didn't really care much for the French side of his family, and though technically a vassal of the French king, rather gave his allegiance to the emperor. He was actually the last legitimate male-issue heir to Charlemagne, so there was value in his lineage, but he seemed not to have been as vigorous or enthusiastic as his father had been in trying to redeem their family's power in France. When he died, which happened perhaps in 1006, but also perhaps in 1012, he did so with no heir or issue as medieval nobility were wont to refer to their offspring. Now, with no obvious successor to the Duchy of Lower Lorraine again, the whole chaotic wheel of lowland noble aspirations would turn into hectic motion. The emperor, of course, wanted to ensure that it was one of his puppets that was elevated. The counts of the lowlands, however, wanted their own independence from anyone, no less a puppet of the emperor, and these counts were, indeed, those of Louvain and Hanau, the line of rebels spawned by all those Reginars. So, coming into the mid-1000s, the French king was weak, the emperor was struggling to rein in these Dutch nobles, and some of these nobles were steadily trying to increase their power. Whilst talking about all these counts and their fiefdoms, we have not touched sufficiently enough yet on what was definitely, at the time, the most powerful and important of them, Flanders. We thought we would give it its own little section, within the folds of this fable of family feuding and feudalism. We know that the Counts of Flanders had a penchant for the name Baldwin, taken from the first of them, Baldwin Ironarm, who was around in the 800s. As we saw in the previous episode, Baldwin Ironarm had become the first Margrave or Count of Flanders by running off and eloping with the daughter of the French king, Charles the Bold, in the 860s. From that early point, Flanders was a vassal of France, as opposed to the other lowland fiefdoms, which were, as we've just been looking at, extremely unhappy vassals of the emperor. The Flemish counts, who were generally called Baldwin, but occasionally also Arnulf, had a significant influence in the matters of France and the French throne. The couple's son, Baldwin II, had come to power in Flanders in 879, amidst the era of Viking raids in the lowlands and the French coast, but also at the time that the Carolingian descendants were constantly fighting over the area between the eastern and the western parts. In around the 880s, Baldwin II moved his power base north and built fortifications at Bruges, Kortrijk, Ghent, and St. Omer, all of which would become places due to leave indelible impressions on European history. This was the time that we spoke about in our previous episode, when Charlemagne's empire was being split up by his grandchildren. Charles the Fat was deposed in the 880s, and the split between France and Germany became solidified. It was due to those wars that Flanders had become a vassal of France and not East Francia, come the empire. Because of this, Flanders did not have to bear the constant attempts by the German kings slash emperors in the east to oppress and dominate as the counties of Lower Lorraine did. The counts of Flanders owed their allegiance only to the French king. However, the position of French king was so often embroiled in the political machinations of the French nobility and often was not of 
enough strength to have that much influence over its vassals, no less such a powerful one as what Flanders was becoming. So, relatively independent, Flanders just kind of rocked along, consistently gaining wealth and power. Baldwin II, being the grandson of Charles the Fat, could very well have made a claim for the French throne after the Fat One was deposed of it. However, he chose not to. Instead, backing his uncle Arnulf, who had already taken the throne of East Francia, to then unite Charlemagne's empire once more. But Arnulf refused, and another dude was made the French king. He would end up attacking Baldwin II, but was repelled. In the power politics that followed, Baldwin went and conquered south, meaning that Flemish territory began encroaching further into France. Baldwin II's son, who he inventively called Arnulf, would continue his father's expansionist policies once he became the Count in 918. This was towards the end of the era of rampant and seasonal Viking attacks. By now, Norse populations, Norse being the term for Viking raiders from the north, had stayed in the south and become entrenched in many parts of West Francia and the Lowlands. We saw this with the examples of Rorik of Dorostad and Godfrey the Sea King in the northern Lowlands. Arnulf of Flanders' exploits into France brought his forces against the, yeah, exploits of another growing fiefdom, south of his, one that had been granted to Norsemen by the French king. The fiefdom itself took its name from the fact that they were Norse. It was the Duchy of Normandy. Arnulf could not make any serious gains against it, although his followers did at one stage kill its duke. But from then on, Flanders would have to look eastward for expansion, away from the strengthening power of the Normans to their west. The next Flemish count, they were back to Baldwin, was made co-count by his father Arnulf, but then he went and died, so we'll actually just skip over him. He left his infant son, Arnulf II, as heir to the still-ruling Arnulf I. Arnulf I, however, went and died just three years later, leaving the country to be ruled by a regent, as Arnulf II was still a kid. This regent would also die not long afterwards, leaving Flanders to just flounder around for a little bit, which is not a good foreign policy approach for the Middle Ages. Basically, by the time Arnulf II came of age, the gains that had been made in the south by his grandfather had been lost because of all this inconvenient dying. The strong noble families feuding over the French crown had been sure to take what they could. As always in the lowlands, power would still ebb and flow according to the whims of the big powers on their flanks. Arnulf II also died, leaving his infant son, and guess what? We're back to Baldwin, as a young beardless count whose power was held on his behalf by a regent. But once this Baldwin had come of age... He grew a beard, and he took control, and he went about once again acquiring more territory for Flanders. Normandy was now strong, and so Baldwin indeed looked deeper into the lowlands and those fiefdoms which owed allegiance to the emperor. We are now at the same time where we just left our other Dutch nobles, all those Reginars and Lamberts, and their wranglings for greater autonomy from the emperor. Baldwin the Bearded jumped in on the side of these nobles and went about pushing north and eastward. The empire fought back and even created a coalition against him that included the King of France and the Duke of Normandy. This succeeded for a few years, but only a few years later, Baldwin the Bearded once more brought his military resources into the lowlands. This time, the emperor, trying to fortify against these expansionist aims, could not rally the support of the local nobility. And so Baldwin the Bearded managed to do enough to then be enfiefed by the emperor with the counties of Alost to his east and Zeeland to his north. There now existed two different Flanders, all of it ruled by Baldwin the Bearded. There was his original holding of French Flanders and now also another holding of Imperial Flanders. This made him incredibly powerful, 
Although a vassal of both sovereigns, the French king and the emperor, this just meant he could wield great resources and influence against and over them. William of Poitiers, the influential priest and chaplain of the Duke of Normandy, wrote of Baldwin the Bearded, quote, The kings feared and respected him. Dukes, marquises, bishops trembled before him. End quote. Power then in Western Europe had once more flowed into the lowlands. The bearded one, although dying in 1035, would leave his son, the last Baldwin we will mention for the moment, thankfully, in quite a powerful position as Baldwin V. Baldwin V went to war again against the emperor, in which he did not fare so well, losing land to Herman, the Count of Mons in Hanau. If you remember back in this episode, which we are aware has been ridiculously heavy on information, the Count of Hanau descended from one of those rebellious brothers, Reginar and Lambert, back in the 900. The tradition of switching allegiance whenever it suited them had been very well maintained. Although Baldwin V lost land to the Count of Hanau when Herman died, Baldwin then married his son, whose name you can guess but we promise not to mention, off to the widow of the dead count. Because women didn't really have any rights, this effectively put Baldwin's family in charge of Hanau, which was one of the most powerful fiefdoms of the Lowlands. This was terrible for the political position of the emperor in the Lowlands, but showing how influential the Count of Flanders was, he still managed to get that marriage acknowledged by treaty by the emperor. Flanders was set, Baldwin V then made some savvy political moves. In 1053, his daughter, Matilda of Flanders, was married to the young Duke of Normandy, a guy called William the Bastard. In 1060, the French king died, leaving his seven-year-old son the throne. Baldwin V was then made the co-regent along with the child's mother, Anne of Kiev. Baldwin V then also married the dead French king's daughter, Adela, the Count of Flanders was arguably the most powerful noble in Western Europe at this time. The story of his daughter's courtship by William the Bastard is uncertain, although legend has usually involved the story of William asking her hand, her refusing, and he going and taking her by force, even violently beating her. It's impossible to know, but Clearly, given how awfully women have been treated through history, their experiences have generally been neglected and lost to record, so we will never know. We want to rectify this somewhat by recognizing Matilda of Flanders, because she would become the first Norman Queen of England. And that brings us to this week's installment of Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. That's right, the first Norman Queen of England. Bet you didn't know she was Dutch! Or Belgian, I guess. Whatever. It's still the same thing at this point. The Pope actually banned this marriage before it happened. It is entirely unknown why he did this. And there is no clear consensus of agreement. But it has been widely suggested that it had something to do with them being the product of generations of close ancestral reproduction. And the Pope thought the marriage was a little bit too in the family. A remarkable thought, considering the standards of the nobility of the day. Baldwin V's Regency of France ended in 1065. By this time, William the Bastard, the Duke of Normandy, was well into preparations to make an assault across the English Channel, and to go and take the English throne. Baldwin decided to back him. This was a huge investment of Baldwin's. He had an unusual position, but one that truly reflected the vagaries of European politics that we have been banging on about this whole episode. He was stuck between France and Germany, essentially dealing with the whims and wishes of those lands' sovereigns. Lowlander politics had to be about securing this tenuous position, while not being sucked in or absorbed by one of the big neighbours. The nobles in the imperial lowlands fought for this against the emperor, and the counts of Flanders, obliged to the French kings, but now also the emperor, positioned themselves against losing their identity to either. Baldwin could have likely put a stop to William the Bastard's transition into William the Conqueror, had he so wished. The Count of Flanders 
was pretty much in charge of France, and it wasn't really in France's interest to have one of its vassals go and take over England and all of its resources. But Baldwin decided that it was in the best interests of Flanders. He actively facilitated what would become a world-changing event. From this point, this constant ebbing and flowing of power across this northwestern swampy part of Europe could not only include the sovereigns of France and Germany, but England would gradually come into the fray as well. And this too would have a huge impact on the history of the Netherlands. And so, that is where we will leave it for this episode. It has been a lot, we know. Many names, much incest, and a whole lot of squabbling over parcels of land by the people who deem themselves as noble enough to rule it, all the while endeavouring to keep their own autonomy from those that might be higher than them on the feudal ladder. But, of course, as we all know, history is not just made up of inbred nobles. Their geopolitical wranglings are the stories that have been most commonly told throughout, well, history. But during these times, countless other people lived lives that did not involve running around with their armies, selling off their daughters, marrying their cousins, and trying to elevate themselves and their family lines. Everyday people's experiences actually make up the overwhelming majority of history. And it is to those people, and to the things that concerned them, from the 900s to the 1100s, that we shall turn to in the next episode of the History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.